Well, what an amazing proclamation of the gospel we just sang there. I hope you were able to take that in, just those beautiful words of what it is that Christ has done for us. Uh, let me uh, just again welcome you to Fellowship Church. If you are new to Fellowship, uh, maybe you haven't been here uh, that long, uh, we, have, we always just want to make sure you know how, uh, how glad we are that you're here. And uh, we really do believe that God providentially works and brings people. And I love to hear the stories. I know that the other pastors do as well of just the different ways that, that God brings people. But welcome, and we hope that you're blessed by being here. We are moving now into a time of teaching and preaching the Word of God, which is an important part of our gathering, where we recognize the authority of Scripture and we submit to it. And the way we've been doing that as a church is we've been working through an Old Testament book, a series in the book of Joshua that I will continue uh, with today. Uh, and then we'll pause, uh, and I'll just say until further notice uh, with, the, uh, with the other pastors, and you'll pick back up with that. But today we're going to look at Jericho, uh, this story, this great battle that is uh, right in the beginning of the taking of the promised land. And uh, of course, as we've seen already through this book, God does not use a typical approach uh, in what he's doing, uh, specifically a typical military approach. And in fact, it seems that, that God uses anything but military prowess to win this great battle. And it brings, I think, to mind something about God that, that we can see and have learned and, and I'll ask it this way for all of you. Have you noticed in your life that, that sometimes God works in very specific ways just to make it clear that he is the one doing all of the work? You know, and I'm sure you can think of examples of that. Have you seen that in your life? Where God just works in a way and it's so clear that the circumstances and the things happening are happening in a way to make something clear to you. He is at work. And he does that. He does that very intentionally. He orchestrates circumstances just to demonstrate that he and he alone is a God, the God at work. Sometimes God allows circumstances that appear to be battles that we cannot win. He allows those circumstances in your life. Some of you may be facing them today. They appear, these circumstances will appear to be a fortified wall that you can't get over, around. And it's all for one purpose. It's to show us that he and he alone is the one we need to win this battle. He's the one we need to bring whatever it is we're facing, that wall, down. And so, whatever it is you're facing today, and I, and I know in a, in, in a crowd like this that there are many battles, many difficulties being faced, but whatever it is that is in front of you that may seem like a wall, maybe it even seems impenetrable to you, Remember, remember that your God may just be preparing you to watch him at work. And you don't want to miss it. We don't want to miss it. 
And even in this case of what we're looking at here in the text today, we're going to see that. So let's pray and ask God to lead us as we go before him in his word. Lord, thank you for the word of God. Thank you that you have revealed yourself to us and that we are to, as your people, we are to read it. We are to meditate on it. We are to think of it. We are to allow this word, this revelation of God to be the authority in our lives. And by submitting to these things, we actually get to see who you are because you have revealed yourself to us in this way. So Lord God, teach us now through your word and every person that is here, whatever it is they're facing, may they hear from you, God, and may they also receive encouragement and hope from the God of all hope, even as we've been singing. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So hopefully you've had a chance to read through this chapter uh, today. I'm not going to have the opportunity to read through the entire chapter as part of the message today, but this story of Joshua, the nation of Israel, the city of Jericho. And again, ultimately, this is a story about God, uh, something that we even like to teach our kids in, 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 in the Sunday school times is, you know, these Old Testament stories are not stories about just people. They're stories about God working through people. And, uh, and in this case, he's providing victory for his people. So I want to get right into the text. And the first thing that we're going to see here is that Israel prepares for a siege against Jericho. You see that in verse 1. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out, none came in. It's the first thing that, uh, that, that's told to us there in verse 1. And so what does that mean? Well, it, it means that the people of Jericho were prepared to stay within those walls as long as necessary. They had prepared themselves for the siege. Once they heard about this nation of Israel getting over uh, the Jordan and what happened, they probably stocked up on supplies and said, okay, let's go lock everything up. We're not going anywhere. And to them, they had the advantage. Because Israel could not get in, they had enough supplies and food, and they felt we would just outlast them. They won't be able to get in and we'll outlast them. But they're going to soon learn that that strategy would not work, not with the God of Israel. And then we see that the Lord God gives very specific and detailed instruction for Israel to follow. Starting at verse 2, this is the Lord God now speaking to Joshua, see I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout. With a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So this is very, you step back from this and you say, okay, this is very detailed, specific instruction. This is the kind of instruction that if I were receiving, I'd be like, stop, let me get a notebook. Like, let me, let me write it down or let me record it because I'm going to miss something. Like, I want to make sure I understand. There's a lot of instruction here. It's organized. It's well thought out. This is far from barbaric. This is not just some barbaric attack. This is well thought out. It's well organized and it's not chaotic in any way. This is their battle plan because this is the Lord's plan. 
So let's go through the battle instructions just to make clear uh, what they are. So first, uh, first one that, that I want to make note of is that God has already promised you victory. Let's, let's not miss that, right? Like the first part of the plan is that God has promised you're going to win. That's a really good start to the plan, right? Yeah, it is. It's a really good start. When the plan starts to find out, I've already given this city to you. So that takes faith then. So the reason, the reason God does that is because he is putting into effect a promise that the people must trust in, in faith. And he does that with us too. So he gives us a promise, but you have to trust it in faith. And, and, and he's, he's doing that. Second, the people of Israel are to march around the city of Jericho for six days. Seven priests bearing seven ram's horns will march before the Ark of the Covenant. And, and so you have very specific instruction for the priests, for ram's horns, for the blowing of these trumpets, and also an order. There's a sequence. Who goes in front? Who goes behind? What goes behind that? And then you have the priests with the horns, and then you have the Ark of the Covenant. And as they march, they are to be blowing the ram's horns. The armed men, which will be the military men, this will be different than the priests, they're going to march before the priests. And then there's going to be a rear guard walking behind the priests. And then, on the seventh day, they would march around the city seven times, blowing trumpets. Then a long trumpet blast, and after that, the people would then give a great shout. And God said the walls will fall flat. And part of the instruction was that Jericho and all that was in it was devoted to destruction. I'm going to talk about that in a little bit. And the people of Israel were to keep themselves from anything that already God had devoted to destruction. And again, I'll talk about that in a little bit. And then another part of the instruction is that only the silver, gold, vessels of bronze, and iron are to go into the treasury of the Lord. You see that in verse 19. So again, very, very specific instructions. These are the kind of instructions that a leader doesn't go, well, I'm not really sure. I don't remember the order. Just put them in any order. It doesn't really matter. No, it matters. Like, this is very, very specific. God is doing this in a very organized way. I want you also to notice the spiritual symbolism here, because there is symbolism, and there's obviously a spiritual message coming through what's happening in the battle plan. So first you see the number seven, the number seven. There are seven priests, there are seven horns, there are seven days, and there are seven trips around the city. None of that is coincidental, right? You don't read that and go, oh, okay, wow, this guy just, must, the, the writer just must really like seven. Like that's his favorite number. He did everything in sevens. No, this, is, this has meaning. And, and the meaning is, is, a, is a spiritual Meaning, because the number seven is a number of completion. And, and it has a meaning here of full and complete victory. This would not be a, a halfway victory. This will be a full and complete victory of the Lord. And it's also going to require full and complete obedience. Not partial, not delayed, not halfway. It's going to require full and complete obedience. And so you see the number seven. And then you also see the priests. These are the priests at work again. And their work is spiritual. The priests have a spiritual part to this. Just like, remember the crossing of the Jordan. 
They played a key role in the, in the crossing of the Jordan. And, and when they walked into the river carrying the ark, right? They had to step into uh, the water. Now they go before the ark with the ram's horns declaring in faith the victory of the Lord. Because the trumpet sounding was actually uh, something that you typically did at, at, the, at, the, at the time that you won the victory. Well, they're declaring victory in faith before victory has actually been seen. But they're doing it because this is how God has instructed. And they play this role. The priests play this very important role. Then you see the Ark of the Covenant. Again, the Ark, the presence of the Lord. Remember that. Every time you're reading through the Old Testament, it it represents the presence of God with his people. And it is the most significant part of this battle plan is the Ark. And what is happening with the ark? The ark, again, symbolizes God is with his people. So the question, again, going back to last week, is not, you know, is God on my side? The the, the question really is, are we with him? And he is then going before and we are to follow him. By obedience, they're demonstrating he's the one they're following. And the ark of the covenant is there, the presence of God with his people. And then you notice the silence and the shout. Notice the silence first. Six days march around the city with horns blasting, but no talking. Do not say anything. Some of us would really have a hard time with that. Look at verse 10. Do not make your voices heard, neither shall any word come out of your mouth. This is the kind of thing where somebody would look over to the other guy and go, did he really mean that, that we can't talk? You're talking right now. Like, that's a problem. And he means what he's saying. They are to go around. There's silence. But on the seventh day, no more silence. Now, everyone is not only, not only are you not to be silent, you are to shout with a great shout, which has a meaning of everything you have needs to go into this shout. And we're to do this together in unison as one people, one voice to the nation of Jericho, to the city of Jericho. So they were to be quiet when they were supposed to be, and they were to talk when they were supposed to talk. Sounds like good advice. Right? Even for us. Silent when you're supposed to be silent. Talk when you're supposed to talk. But let's be honest, stepping back from this, these these are strange instructions for a military battle plan. I mean, especially for trying to defeat a fortified city like Jericho. This is just not what anyone would expect. So we... We sometimes read these Old Testament stories, we become so familiar with them that we don't, we don't really understand the fact that these people, the Hebrews, are people, they're humans. They would think like we would think. You know, they would go, really, is this the best way to go about this? But they're moving forward in faith. Now let's look at the victory. Verse 20, as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat. 
so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. So they did exactly what the Lord commanded, and somehow everything worked exactly the way the Lord said it would. Isn't that surprising? When you do things God's way, it would work the way God said. You know, in the world of sports, we would say it like this. We would say, well, that play worked exactly the way we planned for it to work, which doesn't happen very often in sports. In fact, most of the plays don't work the way. But when it happens, it's kind of like, wow, look at that. It actually worked the way we drew it up. This happened precisely in the way that God said it would. Now, for many years, even after, you know, long after this, the experts would deny this story as being true, which is not uncommon to deny Old Testament stories as, as being true. We're, we're, we are reading a true biblical account of something that happened, really happened with real people in history. This, this is not a made-up symbolism thing. It happened. It has spiritual meaning, but it happened. But there was many, 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 many people would deny that this story would happen. And they said that they would point to the archaeological evidence, uh, saying it just didn't support the biblical account of Jericho. But then in, uh, in 1997, there, were some, there was some new archaeological evidence uh, that was discovered, and, and it actually supported this exact description. Uh, they found uh, piles of mud bricks that had collapsed uh, and and, and they noticed that the evidence showed that they, the, the, these bricks, were, which would have been part of the wall, were not destroyed from a siege attack. A, a siege attack for walls would typically be uh, either some sort of battering ram or a trebuchet where they were throwing, you know, hurling rocks at a wall and trying to get it to, to fall down. That didn't show evidence of that. It, it seemed to just show that the walls crumbled and fell. They also noticed that there was a layer of ash over the city. And it was three feet thick of ash, suggesting that the city was burned to the ground. Then you look at Joshua 6, 24, and it says, and they burned the city with fire and everything in it. They also found in, in the studies that the city did not seem to be plundered because under the ash, they found clay containers of grain that, that must have been in some of the houses. And it told the researchers two things, because if you have a siege going on over a long period of time, the city that is being sieged will have their storage of food, but they'll eat that food during the siege. And a lot of times, if the, if the enemy outside can outlast them, the city inside runs out of supplies. But in this case, they noticed that in most of the grain uh, vases they found were filled, which says it wasn't a long siege. They weren't there stuck just eating for a long period of time. The other thing it shows is that the grain was not plundered. And in most cases, an enemy would come in and plunder that kind of, uh, of stash of food and they would take it for themselves. But Israel couldn't do that because of the instructions of the Lord. Probably the most fascinating discovery was on the north side of the city where there was a section of wall with houses built into it that weren't destroyed in the same way as the rest of the city. And then the question of, could that have been where Rahab and her family were living in that part of the city? Now, I, 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 don't, I say those things, but let me, let me say this. We do not need archaeological evidence 
to make the Bible true. So I don't say it for that purpose. I'm not, I'm not saying, hey, that happened, therefore this is true. I'm saying this is true, so therefore it shouldn't be surprising that eventually over time we find evidence to support it. And if we haven't found it, we just haven't found it yet. It's true because it's God's word. But it is encouraging to see that his truth is being revealed over time and history with what I would describe as honest discovery. Now let's move on in the, in, in the story. We also see judgment and destruction. So let's look first at the judgment, verse 18. But you, again to the people, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. We, we would have trouble really understanding this text. It just doesn't, it's not something culturally uh, that, that would make sense to us. But I want to try to help this make sense to you because I think this is important for us to understand what God is saying here and what the scripture is saying here. First, let me just say this. The Lord had patience in his judgment on the Canaanite nations. For centuries, they rebelled against him. They practiced all kinds of wickedness. You could look into, into even the history to see some of the things that they had done. But I want you to listen to something that God said to Abraham. It was, it was still Abram here in, in Genesis chapter 15. So Genesis 15, put up here on the screen for you to see, uh, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. Well, the offspring now, as we're reading in Joshua, those people are his offspring, right? And, and, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. So that text there is talking about the affliction and the bondage that happened in Egypt. Then in verse 14, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, Egypt, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. That's exactly what happened. So God is promising this to Abram before it happened. And that's exactly what happened. He, the plagues came upon Egypt. They left Egypt with the possessions of Egypt. As for you, verse 15, that's now to Abram. You shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And that's God saying, your time is coming to an end. I'm taking you home. I've got some others coming behind you to continue on. And then in verse 16, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now you might read that in Genesis 15, not really understand how that connects to Joshua chapter six, but Jericho was an Amorite city. Ai was an Amorite city, which is next in, in Joshua seven. Yahweh was being patient with these wicked inhabitants of the land for centuries, he told Abram, I'm going to withhold my judgment there, that, that will come, but it's going to come with your descendants, you know, generations later, but it will come. And here we are now in Joshua 6, and what we're reading right here in Jericho, this city is exactly what God had promised to Abram. The judgment of God was coming that he had withheld in patience. And so all that was in the city then was devoted, consecrated. You might think, how in the world can you consecrate something for destruction? 
Well, it was consecrated, devoted to God for destruction because he is a holy God. These were, these were evil things being used and the people of Israel were to heed that and not take any of those possessions or anything other than what God had said for themselves. Or they would, by taking these things, they would then take something that was devoted to destruction and they themselves would then invite that destruction upon themselves because they took it and put it with their things. And we see that happen in, in, in the next chapter. And it just shows the holiness, the justice, the righteous justice of God. But this was patient over time judgment. This was not barbaric, just reactionary types of things that were happening here, even in this time of, uh, and in this story of Jericho. So now we need to also see, we see this judgment, but we also see salvation and mercy. <clears throat> Verse 22. There was salvation and mercy as there always is with our God. Amen. Verse 22, but to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. This is what we read about and studied. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. Now, remember what she had to do? She had to get them to come into her house and only if they were in the house would they be protected. So apparently her father, her mother, brothers, and all that belonged to her, they listened, they came in, they believed, and they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel as they were getting ready to bring the final destruction on Jericho. They removed this remnant of, of people that had believed. Rahab and her family are mercifully and graciously saved. In the midst of the judgment, there is salvation and mercy. Notice for who, too? The prostitute of Jericho and her family. Sometimes we think of this story and all we think about is the, is the judgment. And we forget that in the midst of this story is the salvation and mercy of God. Right in the middle of this story for a person who you would never think deserved it. Rahab was spared. And we talked about this several weeks ago. Why? Because she believed. What did she believe? She believed in the God of Israel. She trusted that he, this God, was the one true God. And that all the gods that were being worshipped in Canaan, in Canaanite land, and among the Amorites, she would have to say they aren't God. He is God. And because of that, there was mercy for her. And so we cannot miss the mercy and the grace of God in this story. And then we see that Joshua issues a curse on anyone who seeks to rebuild the city. Why does he do that? Well, because the city, again, was devoted, consecrated to God 
for destruction. And that's a hard thing for us to understand. And I think one of the main reasons it is, is because of the difficulties we have in understanding the holiness of God and God's response to wickedness and sin. Because that city was devoted to God for destruction, to ignore that would be to defy then the Lord's decree. So Joshua has this promise of a curse if this happens. Well, if you keep reading in the Old Testament, you see it happened. And you might want to write down 1 Kings 16. You can read it sometime later. But 1 Kings 16 talks about Hiel of Bethel, who attempted to rebuild the city walls of Jericho. And was judged pretty severely for that and what happened to him. Because God, and in that text, it says in 1 Kings 16, it explains that why God did this was because of what Joshua, the son of Nun, had promised. God upheld what Joshua said would happen. And it proves again to us that God does what he says he will do. And we forget that too often especially when it comes to how God responds to evil and wickedness. And we see that here. So again, a a story of God's faithfulness, God's power, God's might, God's victory, God going before his people, his people trusting in him. Very, very specific instructions. I want to give you some truths to think about um, and apply even to your own life uh, from, uh, from this text that I think are good ones for us to, to really think about. The first one is this. Our, our job is to obey the Lord, not to try and make sense of what he's asking us to do before obeying. Our job is to obey the Lord, not to try and make sense of what he's asking us to do before we obey. But typically that's what we do. Delayed obedience is really nothing more than passive disobedience. When you delay, you're passively disobeying. We just like to pretend like it's not that, but it is. It's a form of disobedience. I mean, think about it. These are real people. I said that to you before, right? These are real people. Could you imagine the conversations of the people while marching around the city on that first day? Now, I I think they estimate that, especially at this time, that the the city of Jericho was probably around nine acres. It's not not that big. So when, when you talk about the nation of Israel, when they circled the city, they would be able to circle the entire city so that if you were, if you were kind of in this line, the people in front of you, You'd, be the entire, you'd have the whole city surrounded and you would just keep walking with really hardly any gaps between the people before you'd have to make you know, one circuit around. And you just kind of go right back to where you, where you started. And you can imagine as they're marching that somebody would lean over to somebody else and go, do you really think this is going to work? Like, look at that wall. You think this is going to work? Can you imagine the conversations of of the people? And maybe somebody else would say, hey, you saw what happened at the Jordan River. Why wouldn't this work? Right? Like, you know, the reality of just the practicality and pragmatism of, I don't see how this is going to work, can creep in. 
and you start to think, I don't know. I don't know if this is, you know, really going to happen this way. And I'm sure there was some, you know, doubt of, is this going to work? Because they're human. But, but among that, there was probably also encouragement to each other to believe what it is that God has already done. Again, look at how we crossed the Jordan. And you would imagine also that even as they're going around the wall, because some of these windows uh, that were built into the wall were in homes, so people could be looking out and talking to them, and I'm sure they weren't saying nice things. Like, oh, wow, that'll be a good way to beat us. Walk around and play trumpets. You know, just you think about what was happening here. And, you know, I can't help, I keep thinking about the VeggieTales part of this uh, story. And some of you who listen to this, you're going, oh, I remember that one too. Uh, don't get your version of what happened here from VeggieTales. They weren't shooting grape slushies at the people of God as they were going around the wall. But still, you get, an, you get an understanding that they had to trust a practical, pragmatic way of thinking wasn't going to work. And it just, it made, it made me think about even about what we're doing as a church, right? How, these steps of faith that we've taken as a church. The steps of faith that we took when we did uh, the Legacy of Worship campaign. And, you know, here we are in sitting in this uh, facility, but more importantly, with many of you who weren't here then, that was the vision. The vision wasn't the place. The vision were, was the people. Same with paving the way. You know, we, we, need, we need a parking lot. Not because we just want to have a nice place to park, but because we want to have people. We want to have a place available for people to come and be a part of this fellowship, of this community, hear the gospel, be built up, be encouraged, be able to be a part of us, us making disciples, doing these things. But you see, to do these things, we've got to take steps of faith. And to do it many times, we have to do it in a, in a, in a sense of obedience before we have all the information where it makes sense. Because this is how God works. Our job is to obey in faith and trust. And that's what we want to continue to do as a church. Obey in faith and trust. Sometimes all we really do is complicate what God is doing with all of our questions, explanations, intellect, fear, information, when we just need to obey. He just says, faithfully obey as I lead you. Second, sometimes God works in extraordinary ways to show us that he's the one doing all the work and not us, which is what I kind of started with in the introduction. Why did God win this first battle in Canaan so you know, extraordinarily? Like, why did he do it that way? Well, to show Israel, just obey. This is the first battle. Think about it. There's a whole land to be conquered. He didn't work in this specific way for every one of the other cities. He did here, the first one. Why? Well, to, to send a message, do what I say, and you'll be okay. I'm going to do the rest. You do what I say, you'll be okay. All they did was march around, blow horns, and shout. But they obeyed. 
They did what the Lord said, and that always makes all the difference. It's the same with us. We have to obey. God is the one who won this battle. And he told them that he would right from the very beginning. But they had to be faithful and obey. And the truth is that God is still fighting and winning our battles. We just have to believe that. There really is no enemy opposition to God that stands a chance. We just have to be faithful to him. And then also we have in the midst of battle, third, do not miss the salvation and mercy of God. This is the don't forget Rahab part of the story. Don't forget Rahab. Not because she's the main character, not because she's the hero of the story, but because she is the recipient of mercy, of grace and of forgiveness. Right in the middle of judgment and battle and falling walls, there is mercy. There is grace. There is salvation. Don't lose sight of that. God saved Rahab and her family. Why? Because she believed in the God of Israel as the one true God, because this God is full of mercy. And we need to remember this even today, even with all that is going on in our world. And, and, and we point to different things and, and, and we wonder and we, we think about, you know, what's going to happen into the future and, is, and, you know, where are we on the, on the whole, you know, end times thing. And we, we ask these, these questions and, and sometimes we can forget that in the midst of all that is going on, we have a God who desires to be merciful and gracious to the sinner. But he's going to do that in and through us, his people. James 2.13, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That needs to be part of our gospel mission. That mercy is, is what triumphs over judgment. And we see that here in the story, in the midst of battle, in the midst of falling walls, in the midst of devoted to destruction, we see mercy and grace. And that needs to be part of our gospel mission as a church and as individuals. So I hope and pray that as you think about this story here, you see the power of your God, the fact that you need to trust in your God. You see that God works in very different ways, but you still got to trust him. And you also see the mercy and the grace of your God. He is still fighting battles for you. He is the one going before you. Whatever challenge, whatever wall, whatever it is that you're facing, remember that your God goes before you and he is very capable. I want you to trust him. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your power and your might. We thank you for the way that you have revealed yourself through your word. We thank you, Lord, for the incredible truth of your uh, word in, even here in the Old Testament, Lord. We thank you that these accounts that we read about are real and true and ones that we can apply to our own lives. Help us, Lord, to trust in you in our own lives individually and even corporately as a church. Lord, help us to recognize that you are a God that works in extraordinary ways. You're not required to work in ways that we understand or that fit our 
uh, methods. You work in ways that, that fit your purpose, and you call us to respond faithfully to what it is you're doing. Help us to be those kinds of people in our own individual lives, in our families, in our workplaces, and then also even as a church. We thank you, God, that you are a God that fights and wins battles that we feel we're in and may be defeating us. Lord, may we trust in you and recognize that we have victory in and through our God. So continue, Lord, to build up our faith. Help us to continue to trust in you. And we pray these things. We ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.